Good job. So, love comes from God. And he's going to say it twice, John is, in chapter 4 of 1 John. He's going to say twice, God is love. Oftentimes when we say that something is something else, it's a definition, right? And so, and this is a definition. Oftentimes we think when we say that God is love, that it's a a definition of God, but it's not. That's not what he's talking about here. God is love, that's not a definition of God. God is, he is love, but he's a whole lot more than that. What it is, is a definition of what love is. When we say that God is love, he's telling us what it means to love someone else. And what John is also going to say is if anyone loves at all, it's a gift from God. And... You know, we live in a day and age in which uh, you have to define your terms because people take words like love and everybody's around trying to give you their definition. The culture has a definition for love. Um, The media has a definition for love. We each have our own definition for what love is. And most of the time, what we call love is just another form of self-centeredness, selfishness, Most of the time, we're looking out for what I can get out of a relationship, what the other person can do for me. And that's not love at all. Uh, Actually, it's sin, isn't it? So John tells us here, God is love. And if we're going to find out what love really means, then we have to look to God for the definition. Now, we're sadly... we're living in a day and age in which love has become just another four-letter word. And it's really a shame because it sends mixed messages to people. So when you say, I love you, oftentimes that's used to manipulate the other person so that you can get them to do what you want. And that's not love at all. So when Bible tells us that God is love, we need to look to God to see, how do you define that? What does it mean to love someone else? And so he says, this is how God showed his love among us. And love is a verb. God is love. But then he's going to talk about how love is from God and all of that. It's a verb. It has to be lived out. It's more than just words. It's not a commodity. It's something that has to be lived. And if it's not lived, then it's something else. So this is how God showed his love for us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is what love is, John tells us, as David was pointing out. Not that we loved God. God created us. Uh, Jesus died to redeem us. It would be a natural thing for us to love God. That should be the only appropriate response to what God has done in us and, and for us. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What did Jesus gain by dying on the cross for you and me? What did Jesus gain? Nothing. Nothing. He was God. You can't add to who God is. 
He gained nothing from this. He came for you and for me so that we would understand the love that God has for us and that we would begin to understand for the first time what it means to love someone. It means that you're willing to lay down your life for them, as Jesus says in John 15. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And as David pointed out, God went even farther than that. He laid down his son, Jesus, died on the cross while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies of God, it says in Romans 5, alienated from him, separated, and there's no desire in our heart for him at all. That's when Jesus died for us. That's what love is, giving without expectations or demanding anything back. It's costly. In order to love another person, you have to become vulnerable to that other person. Um, let down all the defenses if you're really going to have a relationship with the other person that's based on truth and honesty. Um, and we all build walls. We build walls because we're afraid. And so we build defensive walls. I'm afraid that person, if I commit myself to him or her too much, then they're going to hurt me. They're going to disappoint me in some way. I guarantee you they will. <laughs> because it's, we, we are all sinful people. And so the alternative is we either make ourselves vulnerable, tear down the walls, and give of ourselves, or we build the walls and we're isolated just with ourselves. And when we find that we're isolated just within ourselves, that may be one of the definitions of hell. So this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he says it very clearly even more clearly in verse 19, 1 John 4, 19. And this is what I want us to get out of this morning. We love because he first loved us. So that's the, that's the answer to David's question. He says it twice, the, the verses up there. This is love, not that we loved him, but that God loved, loved us. And then he's, he puts it even clearer in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. So I want to keep that in the back of our mind, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. What does it mean that God loved us first? In Genesis chapter 3, chapter 3 is when sin first entered into mankind, humankind, because of a deliberate, willful knowing act of rebellion against God, choosing to believe a lie instead of living in the truth. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we're going to see it wasn't Adam and Eve searching for God after they sinned. No, they went and hid. When the presence of God came in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, they ran and hid. For the first time, they wanted to hide from God. Before sin entered into the world, um, I think that was the highlight of their day, to be in the presence of the Lord, a holy God living and dwelling among holy people, people created in God's image and likeness. That's, that's us. But Adam and Eve, once they sin, now there's nothing in them that desires God. Now they're afraid. Now they're ashamed. Now they feel guilty. 
Now there's a, a negative self-awareness to where they're even willing to sacrifice the only other person that's close to them for their own self. And so we become increasingly selfish the more we go into sin. And our world view becomes narrower and narrower and narrower. And so in the garden, it's God who comes looking for Adam and Eve. God comes calling after them. He loved us first. In John 15, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, um, he, he tells them very clearly, you did not choose me, I chose you. And, you know, if we're here this morning and Christ lives in our heart, it's because Jesus was looking for you, not because you're looking for him. He came looking for you, and the Holy Spirit creates the desire, the awareness, the hunger for him in the heart. God does that. God creates that in our hearts. And so Jesus comes to the disciples and says, come and follow me. And they left everything and followed after him. And they thought, man, I'm doing this for God. And Jesus is telling them clearly, no, I came looking for you. You didn't come to me and say, hey, Lord, can I follow you? It wasn't, none of those guys did that. Jesus went looking for them, and he called them to follow after him. That's why they followed him. If we're here this morning, it's because God put that in our hearts to do that. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, um, Peter's giving this sermon, a very powerful sermon, and toward the end of the sermon, he's going to give an invitation uh, because the Word of God is applied by the Holy Spirit to the hearts of sinful men, they are struck to the heart. And they cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, You need to repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, The promise is for you and your children and for all who far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So if they're coming to know him, it's because Jesus is calling them. What cut their heart? It was the word of God uh, speaking into them and showing them their great need and an offer of the grace and mercy of God, forgiveness through the blood of Christ. It's him calling them. The promise is to you, your children, all who far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. There was a man by the name of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And Zacchaeus was a man that everybody loved to hate. He was a tax collector. He was a man who had a government job uh, working for the foreign, pagan, oppressive government. And he was good at his job. And normally what these guys did was they were wealthy because they added extras to the tax. And the extras, they put in their pocket, and that's how they made their living. And Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. Um, because of that, people hated him. His own people hated him. But he heard, verse chapter 19 of Luke, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He's on his way to be crucified. Jesus is on his way. This is the last trip he made. He's going through Jericho. 
And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, he's not only a tax collector, he is a tax collector over other tax collectors. So he's getting a, not only his own cut, but he's getting a cut from every one of the guys who's under him. That's why he's wealthy. It's also why he's hated. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but he was short. He was vertically challenged. Uh, and because of the crowd, he couldn't see. So this man, this uh, high-positioned man, wealthy man in the community, he ran ahead. Uh, they didn't usually do that. And then he climbed a tree. Now, this is a grown man, and he's climbing trees. And uh, it's public. Everybody, that's Zacchaeus, up in the tree now, the guy, you know, they didn't like him anyway. So he thinks that he's looking for Jesus. Jesus is on his way. There's crowds of people following him and all of that. And Jesus comes right to where the tree where Zacchaeus is, and he stops right underneath it, and he calls him by name. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today, which was a radical, shocking thing because good Orthodox Jews didn't go to the house of known sinners because... By going there, you became ritually unclean yourself. And so Pharisees would have nothing to do with Zacchaeus. Uh, he would walk down the road and they would cross over and walk down the other side. They didn't want any, anything to do with this guy. And now Jesus is coming. Zacchaeus thinks he's looking for Jesus. Jesus is the one looking for him. And later on in verse 10, look, look at verse 9. Zacchaeus host Jesus. Uh, Jesus didn't say, Zacchaeus, you're a great sinner. You need to repent. He didn't do that. He just went to his house and had lunch with him. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. It was a big gift to charity. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. He said, this is a man of faith. He's accepting who Jesus is and he's doing something about it. This is what repentance is. It's a change in behavior. Now he's a wealthy man because he's greedy and he doesn't mind cheating other people to become wealthy. He's made his whole living doing that. So this is a greedy, grasping man. He doesn't mind being hated because he has the wealth to get all the stuff. But there's a change in him. I'm giving half of what I own away. And if I've cheated anybody, which is everybody in town, <laughs> he's going to give them four times back what he stole from them. There's a bit of change in him. A basic motivation of his life has changed. And so Jesus says, this man too is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. So all the critics are saying, why did he go to that sinful man's house? Jesus said, I'm looking for him because he's lost. He knows he's lost. He doesn't know what to do about it. He wants to change. He doesn't know how. And the Pharisees would deny him even the possibility of change. 
They would condemn and judge and criticize him, kick him out, have nothing to do with him. If he came and said, I want to change, I'd say, too late. You had your chance. You blew it. Jesus comes looking for people like that. I'm glad. I'm glad he does. So Jesus came looking. He's looking for him first. So we love him because he first loved us. Always, our love for God or anyone else is ultimately a response to the love of God who daily goes before us and reveals what love really is. So this is on a daily basis, uh, revealing to us, helping us to understand. You know, in Luke chapter 5, when it talks about uh, Jesus calling the first four disciples, Peter and his brother Andrew and then James and John, said Jesus went there and he called these men to leave everything and come follow him. Their, their homes, their businesses, everything. Leave everything. And it says in Luke 5, 11, so they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Now later on, in Mark chapter 10, um, Jesus had been talking to them about what it means to to be a real disciple. Um, and in, Luke, in Mark chapter 10, verse 28, this is uh, after the rich young man, and um, so they're asking, if this rich young ruler, um, because of his love for his possessions, can't be saved, uh, who can? Because in their society and culture, if you were wealthy, it meant that you were under the blessing of God. If you were poor, somebody somewhere had done something wrong. Maybe you. <laughs> and that's just the way they looked at it. It wasn't an accurate thing, but that's what they thought. So they're asking, if this rich ruler of the synagogue can't be saved, who can? And Jesus looked at them and he said, With man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible with God. Verse 28 Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. And they had. So, we love him because he first loved us. Peter says, Lord, I've given up everything to follow you. You remember Philippians chapter 2. Jesus came into this world. Jesus left heaven itself. Not for anything that would benefit him, but for you and for me. Peter says, I've left everything. I've left my house. I've left my business. I've left my family for a short time. Here I am. I've left everything for you. Um, I, you know, I'm seeking after you, Lord. Jesus loved us first. His very presence is that he left heaven. Now, I don't know what kind of house or what kind of a job, as far as business-wise, uh, Peter had. He was a fisherman, commercial fisherman. But I don't think it would, would have matched heaven. Jesus, being equal to God, part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, left that and walked the earth as a man and voluntarily submitted in obedience to the Father and for love for you and for me 
died on the cross. Very painful, humiliating form of death. That's what love is. So, what can we give that would match what he has given for us? We can give everything that we have, everything that we are, everything we hope to be, and it wouldn't even come close, would it? We can never match that. All we can do is out of gratitude and thanksgiving to the Lord is to offer who we are to him. So there they are. Uh, Later on in John 21, after the the resurrection, and Peter had really um, made a wreck of his commitment to the Lord, committed to follow the Lord and then denied and swore with an oath and called a curse down on himself that he never even knew the man where a couple of hours before he said, I'll willingly die for you. And he meant it. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember, Peter was one of the guys with the swords. He was willing to fight and die for Jesus. But the Lord doesn't want us that kind of a death. He wants us to live for him, which is a whole lot harder. When you die, normally, you only die once. Living is an everyday experience. And so Jesus comes and he he talks to, to Peter. He gets all that sorted out. And then he tells Peter, this is what's going to come in your future. And he's talking about, um, because Peter, because he was afraid of being crucified, his fear of death was stronger than his love for Jesus. And we can understand that. His fear of that kind of death, because it was a painful thing, a torturous death, that was greater than his love for Christ. And basically in John 21, Jesus is going to tell him, you're going to come back and you're going to have to go through that. And if uh, tradition is correct, that's what happened. Uh, Peter eventually, under Nero, was crucified and at his own request, upside down because he doesn't feel worthy to die in the same way Jesus did. So Jesus is telling them years and years ahead, uh, this is what's going to happen. And then he looks at Peter and he says to him, follow me. He's not asking Peter to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done for him. And he's telling Peter, Follow me. That's the same words that he used when he called him from leaving the nets. Follow me. And he followed him. And he turns around, Peter does, and he sees John back there, and he says, well, what about this guy? And Jesus says, that has nothing to do with you. My dealings with him is my dealings with him. As for you, he tells him again, follow me. And so where we follow is where Jesus leads And he always go before us. Um, In Matthew 6, 33, he's talking about the things that we need in life. Uh, These are normal, everyday needs that we have. Uh, What we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear for that day. This isn't a fashion statement. Uh, This is talking about what you need. And so Jesus is telling them there, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, and he's talking to them about not worrying about life. 
And he says, we can worry, we can become anxious, we can become fearful, but at the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference about what's going to happen to us. You know, all of our worrying is not going to help us to grow taller. Um, all of our worrying isn't going to add another second to our life. All of our worrying isn't going to give us anything. And so, he says, you don't have to worry about that. But in verse 63, uh, verse 33 of chapter 6, Matthew 6, 33, he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He says, we're only supposed to live one day at a time anyway, and that's all you and I can live. We can't go back and live yesterday over again. None of us have a guarantee about tomorrow, and we don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. We do know we have today, at least part of today, the part that we're living right now. And life has to be lived. So he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. How often do we do that? Do we seek first his kingdom and righteousness when we ask Christ to come into our heart? Yeah, we do. But it doesn't stop there. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness every day. It's a daily walk. That's what it means to follow after Jesus is every day we're seeking first his kingdom. The decisions that we make, uh, the choices that we make, are we seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? A lot of times we have confusion and we're not sure what we should do and all that kind of stuff. If we're walking close to the Lord and seeking him first, then those issues become a lot clearer and there's a lot less confusion. One of the things that John says in 1 John chapter 1 is that God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And people like to talk about the gray areas in our day, in our culture. This is a gray area, you know. It's neither right nor wrong. People are, they're not sure what's right and what's wrong. It's a gray area. God is light. In him, there is no darkness. If it's a gray area, you've compromised somewhere. There's no darkness at all in God. None at all. If, it's a, if we're living a compromised life in the gray areas, then it's a compromised life. There's sin. So the Lord invites us to follow him, seeking first his righteousness. He tells us in Matthew chapter 7, later on in that same Sermon on the Mount, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives, he who seeks find, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. So what are we asking for? What are we seeking? Seek first the kingdom of heaven. What are we knocking on the door for? What do we want opportunity to open up for us? Seek first his kingdom. And then we can ask and seek and knock. Um, you all eat on a regular basis? Yeah, I do. Sometimes more regularly than I should. <laughs> but it's a, it's a regular thing. Usually it's, a, it's every day. And usually it's more than once every day. 
So how often do we ask? How often do we seek? How often are we knocking? Do we do it once? Do we do it uh, whenever there's a crisis, whenever something is, is pressing us and we don't know what to do? Well, you, know, you only eat when you're starving or do you only eat when you're about to die? Well, no. We eat all the time. It's part of our regular way that we have enough strength and health to live. That's the seeking. That's the asking. That's the knocking. It's on a daily basis, a regular thing that he's inviting us to do. And so Jesus talks about us taking up our cross and following after him. And uh, in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, later on there, it says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem. It's on his way to crucifixion with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid so on his way to be crucified Jesus leading the way out in front of them they're following um, they're astonished they're fearful but they're still following Jesus told them, again, just before the crucifixion, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I go to prepare a place for you. So through the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus has gone on ahead. And he told them in Matthew 26, before the crucifixion, he tells them, after I have arisen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And that's where he met John and brought him back into the kingdom. And so Jesus is still going ahead of us. We love him because he first loved us. What is that talking about? We love him because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. When did that happen? We love him because he first loved us. We need to remember that he loves us first and that we need to never forget so that his love can put a sure conviction in our own hearts over the seduction of the world, over the anxiety and fears of the soul, over the uncertainty of the future, over the fright of the past, over the distress of the present moment. We need to remember he loved us first. Not just at the moment of salvation. He loves us first every day. Every day. We speak of it in terms of history as if the Lord only loved us first a single time. Rather than without ceasing, Jesus loves us first many times every day and our whole life through. When we wake up in the morning and turn our soul toward the Lord, He is there first. If you rise at dawn and at the very same instant that you wake up, you turn your soul to the Lord in prayer, He's already there. The Lord loves us first. When we get away from the distractions of the world, of the day, turn our souls toward the Lord, He's there already. He's gone on ahead of us. And yet, we always speak ungratefully 
as if the Lord loved us first only once. He loves us first every day, every moment of every day. And if we turn our heart toward him at any time, he's there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We love him because he first loved us. And so the heart, gratitude, and thanks, and praise, the comfort, the strength, the courage, and the solace that he gives is ours on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment issue. The grace of God is with us in every situation and every circumstance. We just have to open our hearts to receive it. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Everything else will be sorted out. Everything else will be taken care of. And so we keep our eyes on the Lord. We love him because he first loved us. And we draw from him um, the love that we need. That's the only way that we can ever genuinely love anybody else. God is love. And anybody who loves is connected to God in some way because he's the author, the source, the definition of what it means to love in any kind of relationship. We love him because he first loved us. Today, every day, at this moment, we love him because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, like John, we cry out to you, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are because you loved us first. Father, we pray that you would help us to draw close to you until we learn and we begin to embody that love for other people. Because you've loved us, we are enabled to love other people. Because you forgive us, we're enabled to forgive others. Apart from your presence, there would be no love, there would be no forgiveness. And so, Lord, we look to you with, with humility, with gratitude, with thanksgiving for the truth that sets us free. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to the cross, loving us first that we might love you in return. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.